A quick note about this episode. It does not feature the high-quality audio that you expect from the Gut Check Project. This is not typical. However, we have done all that we can to enhance the sound as much as possible. Know that the content is very intense, and our guest has incredible information to share with you. Thank you very much for being a part of the Gut Check Project, and be sure to check out how to submit questions to upcoming guests by going to gutcheckproject.locals.com. And now your episode of the Gut Check Project with special guest Robert Malone. Ladies and gentlemen, you have accessed the Gut Check Project Raw. We've always addressed science, health, and innovation, but GCP Raw has no filter. Where certain platforms are forced to conform to corporate policies, here we deliver uncensored discussions that can impact your health. You know that Ken and Eric aim to have fun and make your time enjoyable, but here in GCP Raw, prepare yourself to have a far more personal experience. No doubt that you know, even though the GCP Raw covers some health topics with healthcare pros, we are not your doctors. So use our show to entertain your mind and not for medical advice. And now, here are your hosts of the Gut Check Project Raw, Ken Brown and Eric Rieger. Hello, Gut Check Project fans and KBND Health family. I'm your host, Eric Rieger, and I'm going to kick it to Ken here to finish up the intro. Ken? Yes, as you can see, this is not our typical set. So we have a very, very exciting opportunity here. We are with Dr. Robert Malone. In fact, we are at his studio, and he's invited us here, and we want to thank him very much. If you are unaware of who Dr. Malone is, Dr. Malone is a virologist, immunologist, accomplished researcher, fantastic author, and most notably the inventor of the original mRNA vaccine technology. Dr. Malone, thank you so much for having us in your home. Thanks a lot for having me here. Absolutely. Pleasant drive on the way out. Um, So, Dr. Malone, what we wanted to do is honestly take this afternoon to visit with you. You've appeared on many podcasts. You've given many lectures on what's brought you to the public eye. Um, I think I confess to you that I discovered you the first time a little over two years ago when you made an appearance on uh, Joe Rogan's show. And since that point in time... You've moved not just from speaking as an authority on mRNA vaccines and that platform, but some of the dangers or at least concerns. And now, I believe recently you've had to move more into medical policy. So kind of where, where are you on that aspect currently? So one of the nice things that's happened during this journey is early on I was more solo. Uh, there weren't a lot of folks that were comfortable speaking out. I'm sure there are many more that would have, but all of the pressure that was placed on physicians and scientists in particular uh, in terms of the censorship and, uh, and, and the deplatforming, etc. So a lot of folks were really hesitant. And then over time, more and more physicians and scientists joined in, and uh, I was able to pivot from focusing on areas that were within my competency, but I was less um, uh, qualified than others. A great example of that is Ryan Cole. I I taught pathology for many years. I've been trained in pathology. Ryan Cole is a board-certified anatomic and clinical pathologist who is trained at Mayo, trained by uh, arguably the best uh, skin pathologist in the world until he passed away, uh, really highly credentialed. 
And uh, once Ryan Cole was part of this and kind of up to the speed in, in talking about the pathology, I didn't have to cover pathology anymore. Mm -hmm. um, likewise, uh, with um, Peter McCullough and uh, um, Asim Mohatra, we have some great cardiologists that can speak to the cardiology. So I've never really needed to talk about the cardiology, even though it's been an issue with the myocarditis and the pericarditis. And so I've spoken about those aspects of those things that I was able to bring value to the discussion with, particularly concer concerning my background in biodefense and my work with the DOD characterizing the cardiotoxicity of the smallpox vaccine and the myocarditis that it was associated with that. So that's kind of what's happened over time is as folks have come in, and now uh, Richard Urso talks a lot about the lipid nanoparticles, so I don't have to go talk about that as much, although he's not in it as much as I have been in, in terms of my role in inventing and developing and, and doing uh, detailed chemistry on that. Uh, but um, as, as, that, as we've had more and more expertise come in, uh, Sacha Latipova with uh, contracting and regulatory affairs, I didn't have to um, cover regulatory affairs as much as I was having to do. Uh, then, then I've been able to kind of look forward, what are the things that are not filled? What are the niches that are not filled? Where are the unmet need? in terms of comprehending what's been going on and making sense out of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's, I've always been kind of trying to push myself out to the edge in the areas that other people haven't covered very well or are not able to cover. And so that's pushed, and then that's pushed me into the public policy domain, uh, governmental affairs, uh, regulatory affairs to some extent, uh, in terms of forward-looking. Bioethics has been something that I've covered from the beginning. It was one of my core competencies. And so I continue to speak about the bioethics. And also, as someone who's vaccine-damaged himself, uh, to represent, I hope, uh, adequately the, the population of vaccine-damaged patients and, frankly, the dead, uh, that that have have no voice. So that's that's been my strategy through this is to not cover the things that are well covered by others, mm -hmm. but rather try to find those areas that aren't being well covered by people that comprehend the full spectrum of of issues. And so that's what's led me more into the public policy part. And then um, we were uh, uh, Tony Lyons after I edited. Uh, Bobby Kennedy's book, uh, The Real Anthony Fauci, twice. Uh, that was a, a lift because uh, it's a, quite a tome. Um, the uh, the um, publisher asked whether I would be interested in writing a book. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that, that started uh, two falls ago. And um, uh, what I did uh, together with Jill, my wife, uh, Dr. Jill Glasspool, is serialize the book um, chapter by chapter using Substack and uh, follow as, as we moved through it and built the logic of the book as three sections akin to the way a physician approaches a patient, history and physical diagnosis and treatment plan. It's basically the three metaphorical sections of the book. Um, so in the history and physical, we had first person stories from those that have been experiencing these things directly. 
uh, in experiencing the censorship and hospital backlash and those kind of things. And then the middle part was the equivalent of a diagnostic effort. What the heck happened to us? Sure. Uh, what, what, you know, all the different rabbit holes about what's happened and who's been involved and the interaction of all of these complex systems, finance, government, um, transnational corporations, uh, all, all of these things are all interacting. And then the last part of the book is, um, was the hardest part to try to write something about how things could be better. What could we learn from this? What are the lessons learned? What are the potential action items as we go forward? So that's what's really drawn me into this broader scope is trying to put the book together sure. and, uh, and trying to make sense out of all that's happened to us. And then that's kind of continued to be the part of the journey. For instance, now increasingly it's about the propaganda, censorship, uh, and uh, fifth-generation warfare is something that, that uh, I can bring a lot of experience to, uh, kind of being on the front lines of all this now for three years. And uh, and then bring that into uh, the teaching about fifth generation warfare strategies and tactics, and um, help people to understand uh, what what has really been behind the propaganda censorship and um, information control campaigns that they've all been subjected to, which kind of loops back to one of the things that I had done before the Rogan podcast, which was. Uh, develop a working relationship with this interesting guy from uh, Belgium named Matthias Desmet, uh, mm-hmm. the author of um, The Psychology of Totalitarianism and, and the Mass Formation Hypothesis. And those things, it's all wrapped up in, in what's really been done to us, I think is a better way to put it. Sure. Well, so, and you mentioned it already that you suffered a vaccine injury from the mRNA platform. Uh, and I believe I recall you saying it was a Moderna. Correct. Is that correct? So then it was simply a COVID vaccine, and now people are being presented with the issuance or at least the, the boosters being bivalent. And I've also heard you made a reference that there's a stark difference between the way that the U.S. CDC and FDA is handling that rollout versus the, I believe it's the uh, European Medicines. EMA and, and the uh, um Regulatory authority correct. in Great Britain. Correct. Um, Eight mice is all that we we studied. Correct. And yeah, that. So that um, that people people fixate on the eight mice mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, um, for good reason. I mean, it, it is outrageous, uh, but it's only one from from my point of view. It's only one of a whole series of outrageous sure. breaches of norms in terms of non clinical studies. And regulatory norms. Mm-hmm. Um, it uh, so the eight mice. Uh, before that, there was the non-human primate challenge studies that were done with uh, before this was uh, tested in humans, in in which it was quite clear that the vaccines would not stop infection or replication of the virus in the non-human primates, and they just disregarded that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all got the propagandists. Uh, suggesting that it would stop infection and replication, you'll recall. And then uh, we, you know, uh, Tony Fauci talking about, well, 
if 70% of us all took the vaccine, then we would achieve, achieve herd immunity, and then 80 and 90, and well, if all of us took it, then we would achieve. And, and the truth is that, that the vaccine could have never generated uh, protective herd immunity because it is not protective um, from infection and replication and spread. It's all, all a non sequitur. And then, then we had uh, the vice president of Pfizer in the European Parliament testifying that they never had any data showing that uh, the vaccine would be protective against infection, replication, or transmission. So it was all, um, you know, a lot of people are starting to post and talk about the fact that almost everything we were told was lies or misrepresentations. Well, she even kind of chuckled when she said that, yeah, yeah it was almost like she just blew it off as if it didn't matter. Or, or um, as if we were all fools. Sure. Um, yeah, it's there's there's some profoundly bad things going on here, and and so the in terms of the bivalence, I testified last summer in the Texas Senate uh, to the HHS committee that, in my opinion, the bivalent quote unquote products uh, were likely to make the problem of immune imprinting worse, okay, and make it more likely that patients would. Uh, um, suffer from uh, exposure to the virus okay. uh, because of this uh, problem that's long been known in the immunology community and the vaccinology community called immune imprinting, otherwise known as original antigenic sin. And uh, it's a major problem with influenza vaccines mm -hmm. and uh, has been for years. And it's one of these things that in vaccinology, uh, nobody is really allowed to talk about. I actually lost to consulting clients for talking about immune imprinting in the past in the context of flu vaccines. I've done a lot of work in flu. Um, it's, it's been a forbidden topic, and, it, and it's very well documented from top laboratories, huge lab groups all across the world um, in this context with the coronavirus vaccine. And uh, the NIH and CDC have basically, you know, played the uh, monkey, you know, don't see, don't hear, don't speak. Uh, game about all of those data, but uh, it it has played out exactly as I predicted in the Texas legislature that uh, the the quote boosters mm -hmm. bivalent boosters have proven uh, to be uh, more risky than they provide any benefit. But to the extent they provide any benefit, it's very short term, short lived, uh, and. Um, Clearly, the more doses one receives of these products, um, you have a, a cumulative toxicity risk uh, for, for the myocarditis or other types of damage. Uh, and, and now we're starting to learn about all these other risks that are coming in. And, and lately, you know, the latest one was with this uh, young man from Pfizer that was trained in Texas, uh, as you'll recall, uh, that um, was the... Uh, uh, global director for vaccine strategy that was caught by Project Veritas. Oh, he was. Yeah, um, he was at UT Southwestern. That's yeah, correct. and um, uh, urology, I think, uh, but he didn't never completed his residency, uh, and uh, um, went straight into being a global director. Yeah. Fascinating. Uh, <laughs> very, very um, well pulled. <laughs> I dropped out of this one program. Oh, make me the king. <laughs> yeah, I, I can tell you that becoming a global director of a company like Pfizer is a big deal. That's a major appointment um, and uh, fascinating. But in any case, you, you a lot of people miss the nuance of him 
talking, it was in the third of the videos that Veritas released, mm -hmm. he was talking about uh, the uh, dysmenorrhea or menometrorrhagia that is was denied by the CDC for a long time, this abnormal bleeding uh, that women have experienced or long periods or interrupted periods or also a lot of reports of postmenopausal women starting to have periods. And uh, so um, he spoke about this he, and he said that Pfizer acknowledges that this is a major toxicity and that, uh, um, that the current hypothesis at Pfizer, their leading explanation for this alteration in menstruation, was that the products are damaging the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal gonadal axis, which you know is basically the endocrine system. Correct. Um, and uh, that uh, they hadn't really looked into it yet, but this was their leading explanation. I mean, it, it was shocking on so many levels mm. to acknowledge that uh, women are having reproductive consequences, that the company is not taking it seriously and actively. And I mean, if it was me, and I was their safety officer, I would be saying the house is on fire, Sure, right? No. Um, you know, you're damaging uh, reproductive potential across the world. Um, I, I, you know, my hair would be on fire. Uh, and, and I would be expecting uh, an FDA audit at any moment if, if that was me in that position, right? Um, but it was just treated casually. And uh, that, you know, what shocked me about that even more was that if you're damaging the endocrine system of women, you're probably, I don't recall too many gender-based differences in the fundamentals of the hypothalamus and the pituitary between men and women in so terms of toxic, yeah. toxicology. And then there's the children. Sure. That, that you could be potentially damaging the endocrine system of developing children of both genders blows my mind. And, and to have the, you know, the world and the FDA and the CDC treating this as if it's just another cost of doing business is stunning. So the whole thing is, is just bizarre from a regulatory standpoint. But in terms of the bivalence, which is what got me off on this rift, mm -hmm. um, the, the composition of those are still two viral isolates that are extinct. They are not what is circulating currently. And so what you're doing, just to emphasize the point about um, uh, original antigenic sin or immune imprinting, mm -hmm. is you're, if you're giving your patients these products, you're exposing them to more risk because of the intrinsic toxicity, and you're driving their immune systems towards uh, focusing on extinct viruses and extinct epitopes from extinct viruses. And so what happens is if they get exposed now to new variants... This is what immune imprinting, original antigenic sin does, is if they get exposed to new variants, they uh, trigger and evoke the memory cells from the old variants, and then their immune response is dominated by um, cellular and humoral responses to extinct viruses, mm -hmm. okay? Because it's all a big competition in the immune system and uh, between the cells and the, and the response. And so you're, you're, with these bivalents, you've basically forced all recipients down a obsolete pathway in terms of their immune response that is uh, has led to the evolution of uh, escape mutants that are resistant to that to that uh, form of immune pressure. So it's it's just bizarre. The whole thing is bizarre. It's it's uh, predictable. 
Um, and uh, it's um, my wife was talking to me the other day. What is what is the term? You know the term Dunning Kruger effect. Oh, does this mean anything to you? Yeah. yeah that we have we have a tendency to think we're smarter than yeah, we are, are, right? Yeah. Okay, and and that that can be exploited, by the way, in fifth generation warfare. This tendency for us to think that we know more than we do. But but uh, her point was that we don't really have the corresponding term for governments. <laughs> right? We have a government that thinks that it's smarter than it is. Sure. Well, that's, I just want to clarify one quick thing. So when we talk about the immune imprinting and when we're getting these boosters and things like that, you know, I remember reading that article that came out about increasing IgG4. Uh-huh. As doing yep, and there's that shift also that's yeah. also being driven by it. That I did not predict. Okay. Would you mind explaining a little bit about that, about how when it shifts to that, what happens? So uh, antibody responses are really complicated. Um, it's not just IgG 1 through 4. These are four. I mean, there's there's IgA, IgM, IgG, different IgG cl- subcategories. And then there are different glycosylation paths, sugar attachments on those antibodies in those different pathways, those different categories that confer things like different uh, um, turnover rates or stability or functionality, longevity, all these kinds of things are highly, highly regulated. And uh, instead of thinking about all that stuff and grappling with that complexity, what we have a tendency to do is just lump it all together and call it an ELISA assay, right? Or, you know, neutralizing antibodies, which is uh, has no relationship to protection that anybody's been able to demonstrate. So in, in this case, what you're doing is, and uh, this probably has to do with um, another common sequela in, in immunology and vaccinology that I used to talk about a lot, um, which is the metaphor, um, if you're an allergist or if your child has allergies. Um, you'll take your child to an allergist, mm-hmm. uh, and your aller- and the allergist will do a test panel of antigens, typically, and say, oh, your child is allergic to ragweed pollen, or whatever the thing is, right? Um, and then they may undertake a process of immune tolerance, in which they will j- basically repeatedly vaccinate your child against that antigen. Mm-hmm. And what happens when you do that is you generate something called high zone tolerance and you basically shut down or cause tolerance against that antigen. So this is a routine practice that allergists use. And functionally, one of the things that has, is happening with this repeated, you know, um, uh, we have to boost every six weeks or, or three months or whatever the number is, right? Choose your, depending on the paper and the day, um, whatever they're going to advise, um, uh, is that you're, you're driving um, the, not only driving your B cells towards obsolete antigens, but you're driving them towards a type of class switching where they're moving their response to that that's characteristic of an allergic response, IG4, and as opposed to the type of profile G1 and G2 that's typically more associated with clearing viruses. So by by this kind of, I like to, the best metaphor that I can come up with, I just keep coming back to it. If you give a three-year-old a hammer, everything becomes a nail. Sure. And, and they just keep 
pounding that nail, um, thinking that it's going to make things better. It doesn't work like that in immunology. Right. Okay, you can keep pounding that nail, and things will go sideways in all kinds of ways that you can't predict because we don't really understand the human immune system very well. So that's the observation. You're exactly right, as you're seeing shifting to a subclass of IgG4 that are typically more associated with allergic responses. So with that same, if this could result in some sort of immune tolerance, like getting all these shots, you know, it does. I'm seeing... That's, I'm, that's, that's what immune imprinting is, so tolerance. Is that, or could that be one of the causes of why we're seeing, uh, well, I'm seeing anecdotally a lot more cancer, younger people? Ah, cancer. the cancer story. Okay, so cancer and so that that uh, and Ryan Cole loves to talk about this. How many? And he'll back you up with the as he likes to say this: the cells don't lie uh, with glass sections. Um, uh, so this this anecdotal observation that you're making, that oncologists and surgical oncologists are making, pathologists, the few that are willing to talk about it, are making. Um, and that Ryan Cole has been um, really at the forefront of observing uh, that um, we, we seem to be seeing that the phrases are used like turbo cancers or uh, recurrent um, uh, malignancy in the patient who was previously in remission. Um, often it's coming back, uh, the technical term, with a very high mitotic index, which means that you're seeing unusually high rates of reproduction in those cells or cell division. Um, and, uh, and typically in, in a, in, with behaviors, cellular behaviors, physiologic behaviors that are very aggressive for that age or that, what was previously yeah. that stage of cancer. It's getting reported all over the place, but no papers. Um, because, you know, I guess everybody's afraid to report it. But, but the frontline docs are reporting it. Sure. Um, just like you're, yeah. you're talking about it. As a, as a gastroenterologist, I suppose you're seeing colon cancer. Well, seeing colon cancer, but interestingly, one person did publish a paper, and I've seen higher amounts. I bumped into one of uh, our radiation oncologists, and I said, hey, are you seeing more cancer? He's like, all I do is cancer, so I can't tell. My schedule's full. And then he starts walking away. He goes, yes, wait a minute. We're seeing a ton of anal cancer than I never have in the last 30 years. So I picked up some anal cancers, and then a paper just got published. Um, the increasing rate of anal cancer in the Southern Hemisphere or something that was a, a tri-state area. So that's really interesting. So uh, one of the things that was known very early on, um, about the same time as the signal was detected at FDA first, but outside the review branch, and it was quenched, um, the signal of the myocarditis actually was first detected by an outgroup at the FDA that were in communication with me a lot. We were having weekly Zoom calls. And at the same time, they picked up that signal using non-parametric analysis um, uh, with a, a top drawer biostatistician um, uh, from, uh, from the commercial sector. Uh, um, they also picked up the uh, reactivation, the shingles. Mm -hmm. So reactivation of latent DNA viruses. So here's, the, here's the, this version of the story. Uh, latent DNA viruses, so this is the Epstein-Barr virus, that's often in your patients that report uh, chronic malaise after vaccination or post-COVID. So this is one of the, you know, long COVID or post-vaccination syndrome turns out to be a cluster. 
yeah. of things. Um, cluster in many ways. Yes. Uh, but <laughs> a cluster of, of a physiologic, physiopathologic cluster of, yes. of things also, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, so one of those seems to be reactivation of EBV. Um, so a lot of those patients have Epstein-Barr virus that are, that's active. Um, but you'll, you may or may not have picked up the um, uh, increased incidence of shingles. Um, and uh, what ties that together with the cancer story is that it is the cellular immune response that keeps those latent DNA viruses in Pandora's box, metaphorically. Right? Keeps them suppressed and in, in the nucleus and uh, in a latent form. And uh, danger signals can cause them to activate. Mm -hmm. um, so that could be related to the um, clear uh, kind of hyperinflammatory sequelae that are associated with COVID and with the jabs because you're producing so much spike. I mean, this is spike driving a pro-inflammatory state, and it appears to also involve an immunosuppressive state. So if you're having reactivation of latent DNA viruses, that implies you're having a relative deficit, acquired deficit of cellular, cellular immunity. Well, what would you call an acquired deficit of cellular immunity? You would call it an acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. And that's that's... You'll recall that this is what Luc Montagnier was, uh, that and uh, the, the um, risk of uh, spongiform encephalopathy um, was, was the two things that he was really lit up about before he passed away. Nobel laureate for a discovery of LAV that was then renamed HIV mm -hmm. um, in France. So, uh, so Luc um, had... Uh, in predicted some of these things and unfortunately it seems that um, uh, there are growing body of data supporting that uh, and um, that that gets to the kind of the spooky long term spooky in the sense of uh, highly concerning not uh, intelligence um, uh, uh, risks that we have for long term toxicity uh, that seem unfortunately to be manifesting. Do I think that we're all going to die that have taken the vaccine within three years? Well, I doubt it. Um, highly doubt it. But are there going to be, is there evidence that we are going to see excess all-cause mortality? Undeniable. It's coming out in the insurance actuarial databases all over the world. Hmm. Those guys are going to have the numbers too. If anybody's going to have the numbers, it's going to be insurance yeah. actually. So this is this is my buddy uh, Ed Dowd that's right at the tip of the spear on that one. Yeah. Um, and uh, those data are unfortunately coming in uh, consistent with um, some unknown excess all-cause mortality signal uh, that seems to have a strong cardiac component, uh, seems to have a strong coagulopathy component, mm -hmm. and uh, the oncology component. Um, if it's if it's statistically significant, it's, uh, it appears is going to be a little more laggy. It's going to be delayed. Mm -hmm. it, it is a lot of uh, concern that seems to have merit, and it's coming from people like you. Would uh, Ryan and I first um, got kind of independent confirmation from a surgical oncologist in Washington um, State uh, that we were visiting over a year ago. And he was saying he was seeing it all the time. Hmm. You hit on a couple of different things. I wanted to just kind of one. I want to put a little context on. You said uh, spongiform uh, encephalopathy, which is uh, 
uh, I think that that's what the prion of mad cow disease led to, right? It basically was holes in the brain, just so that everybody could understand not to be too esoteric. But that was what they... Yeah, holes in the brain and these tangles that we call neurofibrillary tangles. Mm-hmm. They're proteinaceous tangles that seem to interfere with brain function. And it could be that a lot of that kind of signal is coming. So uh, Jakob Kreutzfeldt disease or Kreutzfeldt Jakob disease, depending on who, who, <laughs> when, you, when you learn the term. Um, uh, uh, so these, a lot of this, it, it appears that um, cent- chronic central nervous system inflammation, brain mm. inflammation, can trigger uh, a, um, these phenomena of proliferation, essentially of brain scars. So this is uh, glial cells and astrocyte proliferation, mm-hmm. and um, that that kind of chronic inflammation may be one of the drivers of neurofibrillary tangle de- development. And these lacunae that are more like uh, multiple sclerosis-like, um, and uh, um, and that would be consistent with the f- observations that the spike protein opens the blood-brain barrier and also may transport into the central nervous system and trigger inflammation. The spike protein appears appears to be incredibly pro-inflammatory. So you've brought up his name a few times, but Ryan Cole actually had some really cool data where he, there were many who were pushing back and they were saying that, well, we can't tell if spike protein is causing this either from an infection, a COVID infection, or actually an injection, uh, the, the vaccine. And so I think quite elo- eloquently, he was able to demonstrate, again, that slides don't lie, that you could see that there should be a viral signature with the nucleocapsid, if it has so, to... Yeah, so immunohistochemistry staining for right. spike and nucleocapsid. The problem is the absence does not... The absence of detection does not prove the absence of the protein. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but it's suggestive. Okay. Um, and, and if you have a lot of spike and you don't see any nucleocapsid, um, that's certainly consistent with a uh, higher probability that's vaccine-driven. Okay. Um, and then we have all the data that have come out independently that show that um, the spike protein um, circulating levels and persistence in post-vaccination is higher and longer than it is post-infection. So with the jab, you get more spike for a longer period of time mm-hmm. and in a, in a um, uh, diffuse uh, whole body um, distribution pattern. Whereas, in, in some of that may be uh, reflecting the distribution of the transfection particles so that your body is making it in all kinds of places, not just blood transport sure. um, or lymphoid trans, uh, transport. So, versus the infection tends to be nasopharyngeal or nasopharyngeal ocular. And uh, so, it, it, it kind of comes on slower and it's more restricted. Um, so, you're not getting these spikes uh, of spike of systemic uh, uh, concentrations. Mm-hmm. So the pharmacokinetics and the pharmacodistribution are very different, to put it technically. Well, when you, when you worked on the development of mRNA uh, technology as a platform, because that's what it is, and then they began to refine it and turn it into the vaccine, I can remember at the launch of it, it was almost as if people were so excited they were bragging that 
All we will ever have to do whenever a new antigen presents itself is we can just beam up and have everyone have the same information to encode this new synthetic RNA for an mRNA injection. However, you've been for a long time talking about the issue of correlative protection is not something that they were able to always establish. Can you kind of expand okay. on what um, All right, so that was, that was a, a little bit of a mashup. I'll see if I can pull that apart. <laughs> um, okay, uh, so um, the, the core concept is uh, gene-to-vaccine. Correct. That uh, you could, in, in the best of all possible worlds, uh, um, Voltaire was the reference, um, Candide, uh, in the best of all possible worlds, you would be able to say, okay, here's the bad thing that somebody engineered or it came out of the jungle or whatever, and it's now appeared in this new population and it's spreading. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can isolate it and um, uh, sequence it and um, select the appropriate antigens because we know so much and uh, beam those out, as you, I think the way you put it, um, spread them over the Internet. And uh, people can um, have that sequence for that antigen synthesized and just load it into the same formulation that they were using for the last bad crit. Um, so that's gene to vaccine as a concept. Uh, and um, it's been tried with DNA and now it's been tried with RNA. So that's that one. The correlative protection, and, and so that's that has a whole bunch of, just to loop back, the gene to vaccine thesis um, has a bunch of baked in assumptions. Uh, that the formulation, uh, its toxicity will not vary depending on the sequence that's put in there and that the toxicity of the viral sequence or bacterial sequence that's loaded in um, will not influence the patient. So it assumes a non-toxic antigen, which in the case of Spike is clearly not the case. Spike is highly toxic and the two proline mutations didn't, were not there to make it less toxic. Mm -hmm. They were there to make it more immunogenic. So that's another false narrative. Um, so, uh, and then, then the thesis that one could uh, computationally uh, or by a mix of computer analysis and knowledge, you could select exactly the right antigen for a new vaccine that would be potent and protective. Okay, so that's that's baked into all that assumptions, mm -hmm. and now I'm trying to bridge to correlative protection. So uh, what what we had early on was uh, um, data coming from uh, Rafi Ahmed's lab at Emory, one of the top B cell laboratories in the world, uh, that. Um, Basically, wow, look at how quick the immune response comes up against this novel coronavirus and how strong it comes up. Okay? Um, when, when you see an immune response, an antibody immune response, come up within two weeks or less, what that means, that, that is technically not possible for a new antigen because of the process of B cell maturation and class switching to go from IgM to IgG, mm -hmm. okay? So to see an IgG signal coming up at two weeks or less that's strong implies that that patient has already seen that antigen. Mm. And in fact, that's true. All of our patients have been exposed 
to circulating coronaviruses. We call it the common cold, mm-hmm. beta coronaviruses, which are immunologically very similar. Okay, so what what you had was a kind of um, uh, a curb your enthusiasm uh, problem. People people were saying, "Oh, look, we see these really strong antibody responses coming up," and when we do our test of neutralization. Okay, which is to say that we take in a cell culture a bit of the virus and a bit of the antibody preparation, the plasma or, or um, uh, serum from the patient that has this strong B cell response. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we mix them, and then we put them on cells that normally would be infected by the virus. The virus doesn't infect those cells because, in theory, the antibodies have neutralized the virus. And so that's one of the assays that um, is used, can, can at times predict that an immune response is protective. If, if that was the case, then um, you would be able to bleed patient A, who had this strong B-cell response, and give their serum to patient B, mm-hmm. and patient B would be protected against the virus. Okay? It turns out that didn't work. Okay? But we just ignored that. So what was done was to say, um, look, these vaccines produce a really strong antibody response. Therefore, they're working. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they're immunogenic. This is the basis for the FDA licensure. These vaccines are immunogenic. They produce a strong antibody response. Okay, And the, the, the next step in the logic train is kind of, so what? Okay. Just because you have something that you can measure, is it clinically relevant? I mean, you know this. You, we all know this, right? This is this is like we live by this. Mm-hmm. You know, so what? Um, uh, there's something published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science with a hepatoma cell, right? Who cares? Does it matter clinically, right? Um, it, is, is there is there something there that can uh, allow me to predict that there's going to be a response in patients? Okay, so um, when when all this talk, oh, we get a, a strong antibody, these are very immunogenic, they provoke a strong antibody response. What the press should have said, if they weren't a bunch of idiot sycophants, <laughs> is, um, uh, so does it protect, right? right? Yeah. Um, and uh, the answer would have been no. Okay, and then, then you would have said, oh, so you were looking at antibodies, they come up, they don't protect, well, then maybe they aren't adequate, maybe they aren't protective, or maybe they aren't a correlative protection. So correlative protection is something that when you measure it, it's a surrogate for the vector sum of all the immune response. Mm-hmm. When you measure that thing, whatever it is, you know, your eyes turn from blue to brown, Okay, and everybody whose eyes turns from blue to brown, I'm using this, I'm being facetious. Sure. Uh, something that you can measure. Um, everybody whose eyes turn from blue to brown becomes totally resistant to infection from SARS-CoV-2. Well, then you could say eye color change is a correlative protection. And if you prove it statistically, right? Even though eye color change has absolutely nothing to do with immune response, it would be a correlate, right? Because mm-hmm. you would be able to say 100% of people whose eyes turn from blue to brown is, are protected from SARS-CoV-2, and so that's going to be our marker. And we're going to develop drugs that cause people's eyes to go from blue to brown. And what are you going to find? 
So you developed a blue to brown eye, but it doesn't have anything to do with protection, right? Mm. And so correlative protection is a loaded gun. Um, it it is used. It, it's 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 the holy grail for vaccinologists because, uh, for instance, a correlative protection allowed by the FDA for influenza vaccines is called hemagglutination. Okay, so red blood cell clumping after vaccination because of antibodies that are elicited, okay? Because uh, the influenza has a hemagglutinin, mm -hmm. okay? So you, you block hemagglutination, red cell clumping. Um, when you have uh, influenza virus in your antibody preparation, well, then that's presumed to correlate, and it has been shown that it is a correlative protection against influenza when you have certain types of influenza vaccines, the traditional vaccines. Sure. It happens with the traditional vaccines. They do other stuff, yeah. but they happen to also generate antibodies that cause the block hemagglutination. And so um, the FDA says, oh, this is now a correlative protection. It's been statistically proven um, with, with influenza vaccines. And then they come out with new influenza vaccine technology. Does that correlative protection have anything to do with the new technology? Not really. Right? It, it turns out, like, for instance, flu mist, mm -hmm. this live attenuated, uh, cold-adapted intranasal uh, vaccine, right, live virus, you blow into the nose of the children, um, it does not give good hemagglutination, okay? It gives good protection, mm -hmm. Because it's generating more of a cellular and mucosal immune response, um, but that isn't what's being measured. Hmm. So, have I made sense about what the, yeah, the, yeah. the good, bad, and ugly? Right. And and so the the government, um, in its uh, let's say enthusiasm, uh, <laughs> uh, to you know trying to give them the benefit of the doubt, sure. um, uh, told, tells the press, look at this fantastic thing. Um, it produces really good uh, immune responses, and it's very immunogenic. And the press immediately assumes that means protection, right? But it has nothing to do with it. But that's what happened. Sure. Was all the hype was about something that was irrelevant and that was partially artifactual because it was a recall response because the spike protein of this beta coronaviruses is immunologically very similar mm -hmm. to the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2. And so they were seeing big whopping antibody responses, no surprise, right. because they already had, patients already had a huge population of already primed B cells. But by the way, those B cells that were already the memory cells were all oriented towards an a virus that was totally irrelevant beta coronaviruses, it very much like the whole problem of immune imprinting. Mm -hmm. That makes sense? It, no, it, it really does. I mean, they were looking at the wrong area. They were using an old technology saying it worked over here. It should work with this new technology. It just didn't match. And, and nobody bothered. So the thing is that there is guidance. There is rigorous methodology and protocols for what you're supposed to do in situations like this mm -hmm. and to prove that you actually do have a correlative protection. But the FDA basically gave everybody a pass. They said, oh, well, we don't have time. We just won't bother. It's just, it's just that obscene that they won't go back, though, and, and revise. I mean, it's, it's one Why thing. Why would they politically? Sure. Yeah. I mean, There's absolutely no incentive. 
So that's another <clears throat> part of the dynamic that goes on here that people don't really understand. Mm -hmm. once, once you've been granted a... So this is just standard pharmaceutical industry practice. Okay? Number one, when you're in the uh, pre-licensure phase, you never do a study unless the FDA forces you to do it. Because you could get results that would uh, um, bollocks up your product. Mm -hmm. Okay, you could get an unexpected result. Okay, suddenly, holy moly, it damages the endocrine system. Oh, there goes your product. Okay, yeah. do you want to be do you want to be the director responsible for doing the study or authorizing the study that caused a multi billion dollar product to be pulled off the market? Hell no, that's like suicide. You do not do studies unless the FDA forces you. And so the FDA, on its side, is like, oh, no, the presidency and the DOD are holding the gun to our head. We have to get this done as soon as possible. We're just not going to enforce all these things that normally we would require because otherwise we're going to get in bureaucratic trouble from our bosses. Okay, So then they don't force pharma to do what pharma is supposed to do. And the whole system just comes crashing down, and your patients end up getting jabbed with a product that's neither safe nor effective. Or, really, uh, the data coming out suggests that the product is adulterated, in that it has a significant contaminant of, of DNA template um, uh, from the manufacturing process that was never gotten rid of. So you're not just injecting your patients, it appears, with RNA, but you're also injecting them with the plasmid DNA. And in the case of the bivalent uh, products, it happens to be a plasmid that also includes simian virus 40 sequences. SV40 has been linked to cancer. This is the first time I've heard this. Wow. So there's D there's actually contaminant DNA. That's the vials that have been tested wow. are showing, and people have done deep sequencing, generated the templates. Uh, the, the plasma to map of the templates, and it's a substantial contamination. And then there's also the um, uh, uh, partial transcript. So this is a, a, a bacteriophage polymerase that's being used to make the RNA, T7 RNA yeah. polymerase, and it falls off of the DNA template at various points, okay? So not all of them go all the way through sure. to produce, produce a full-length RNA. And so you end up with a population of RNAs that's got mostly the thing that you want, but then it's got a tail out here of stuff that are, are shorter. And you know then you have basically truncated spike protein open reading frames being produced. Um, and what that means is also unknown. So again, that's another... The technical term uh, is... Um, adulteration in that the product is a mixture of things that are not supposed to be in the tube. Wow. So Ken ran across something on the way up. Uh, he was reading, it was about uh, the fact that there may be an opportunity for us to move even faster towards EUA and when there is a pending pandemic to be declared. Is that correct? Well, it was from, it was from the book. Um, where there was, you covered a couple things where the secretary uh, can declare an emergency even and then get EUA approval even if the emergency hasn't happened because it could be a pending emergency. Yeah, and that's, they, that's the new language, and that language is also happening at the level of the World Health Organization and the International Health Regulations. I mean, that is terrifying that there's not even an emergency and somebody has the authority to say declare it with the FDA. 
and get anything passed. Anything. Right. And and the other thing that I find shocking about all this is that um, uh, what we've had happen, getting back to the bioethics, is um, a, a stepwise uh, um, erosion of the fundamentals of, of informed consent and bioethics mm-hmm. uh, through a series of legislative acts wherein um, if, if, it's, if it meets these criteria of a potential emergency, public health emergency, then all of that gets suspended. All of, all of the norms of informed consent, this is why they've done what they've done, is they've said that uh, it, if we declare an emergency, we now have the right to bypass all of these regulatory processes and all of the bioethical clinical norms in terms of informed consent. So why bother? So this is why you end up with this package insert for the jab that's blank. Blank. Yeah, there's nothing in there. Yeah. That's not so. I mean, what what is the goal of the governments wanting to move to this model? Is it just a, a control on the population? So that that's um, there. Uh, there's the speculative version mm-hmm. uh, of that, which I try not to speculate sure. on. Uh, I, it's one of my core principles. I don't. I try really hard uh, to not speculate on somebody's state of mind or their motivation, unless I have the artifacts, you know, the memos or whatever. Uh, and one of the things that's become clear here in the D.C. world that I touch on is that there's been a concerted, pre-planned effort to avoid any producing any of those artifacts, memos, notes. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these meetings have been held under Chatham House rules with no notes, and they come together and they make their decisions and they go away and there's no record of it. Okay, so wow. they, they can't be traced. Um, that's that's for sure. That's happening. Okay. Um, and so the only way you can ever get at what happened or what was decided is if you get somebody as a whistleblower who was in that meeting. And then what can happen is, well, that's what they heard, but that's not what I said, right? Because there's no written record of it. Um, uh, so what's the government's purpose? I, I speak on this uh, from time to time about the underpinning logic that's the official logic, mm-hmm. um, which may not may or may not be. We're in a world, biodefense is run by the intelligence community. American biodefense is, is a child of the American intelligence community and the whole um, uh, bio-industrial medical military complex. Okay? So, uh, you know, companies like Battelle uh, um, and... Uh, so there's the official storyline, and then there may or may not be other surreptitious agendas, not the least of which is making money. Uh, um, the official line is that the uh, risk of engineered pathogens and uh, emerging infectious disease is so significant that... Um, we have to have some capability to respond rapidly. And part of the deterrent uh, 
value is uh, for the opponent, the bad guy, to perceive that we have a degree of readiness that may or not be, maybe, uh, um, what do we call it, the software, uh, um, vaporware. Oh. Okay. So if, if the opponent thinks that we have sophisticated gene-to-vaccine technology uh-huh. um, that uh, can, can neutralize their potential threat, then they'll invest their resources in other threats. So it's a game of cat and mouse where um, on our side and on their side too, both sides are trying to position that um, it's very much like uh, thermonuclear warfare and mutually assured destruction. Okay, the, the underlying logic is the same because the people that are driving it are the same people. Okay, um, that it's you know Defense Threat Reduction Agency and the CIA are are the ones that are driving all of this strategic logic, and uh, so that's that's the perception is that with the advent of Cas9 CRISPR and other uh, technologies. Uh, um, the ability to produce uh, bio-threat agents is now so um, uh, highly developed and um, uh, uh, cost-effective, low-cost really, um, and technically uh, unsophisticated that um, the scenario that this will happen, the, the probability of that, those scenarios is high. Plus, we have emerging infectious disease because of uh, um, environmental disruption. And, you know, fruit bats flying in places that fruit bats didn't used to fly, etc. Um, so, um, and pooping on people. <laughs> uh, that. So, so that's the logic. Is that uh, holy moly, the house is on fire. We have such a huge threat that we've got to cut some corners because otherwise we could have catastrophic loss. Or our enemies, our opponents, can uh, perceive a, uh, a risk uh, that they can exploit uh, in, in, um, in fifth generation warfare, in, in diplomatic uh, uh, ways and other things. It just seems like that, that governments are making their own people willing uh, or voluntary collateral damage. Like there's... It doesn't matter what the ramification happens to them if they happen to get sick from this. Well, it doesn't matter because we are controlling them to this end. Is that? I I, maybe I agree. And so it's like I said. It's it's um, we we have the people making the decisions, strategic and tactical decisions, mm-hmm. are invested in a version of the world. Uh, that is one that is biased towards um, uh, a threat assessment uh, that um, we can argue about, about whether or not it's valid. But it doesn't matter because we're not allowed in that discussion. Correct. Um, a great example of that is Event 201, uh, this planning session that was held at Johns Hopkins, sponsored by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and World Economic Forum, in uh, the fall of 2019. And uh, in uh, the people that participated in Event 201, this war game planning uh, 
for a novel coronavirus outbreak that uh, was remarkably prescient in terms of uh, what was done, and, and the timing is stunning that it was fall of 2019, just as the virus was entering the like population. Um, uh, um, uh, you, people, the people that were brought around the table to do the planning were basically people that all had a bias towards um, uh, the biomedical complex and the intelligence community and military response, militarized response. And so what you got out of that was planning for a militarized response. Mm -hmm. And uh, then then it comes about and, uh, you know, metaphorically the POTUS calls up uh, a director of CIA or whomever or uh, a national security agency and says, uh, um, we've got a problem, what are we going to do about it? And they say, well, we just happen to have this snazzy plan that we just came up with. Here it is. And the president said, bless you, my son, go forth and uh, deploy it. And that's, you know, in a very glib, uh, succinct way, that's what happened. Is if you, if you have people who have vested financial interests in, um, in a risk scenario, uh, then you will find them emphasizing that risk scenario and you will find them emphasizing the mitigation measures that they happen to have a vested financial interest in. Right? Yeah, I agree. Well, I mean... Well, they, oh, just, to, just to change the subject a little bit, just to, when, as we're talking about this, you did a great job of discussing groupthink with Dr. Desmet, and I, you had a quote there from Nietzsche. Madness is the exception in individuals, but the group norm. And as you're talking about this, that event 201, bring them there, madness is going to ensue. Because if somebody can use fear that this is an inevitable thing, you, we need to do this, and then write it down on how we're going to respond, and all these people that are going to actually benefit from it, Homeland Security and other are, are all the ones doing the planning, and by the way, it's sponsored by Bill and Melinda Gates, so that... I think it's the ultimate stock insider play for him. He's he's busy sponsoring the government planning and global planning events. Um, that uh, um, so he's he has a front row seat in the development of policy, and he can then uh, take action based on that insider knowledge to make appropriate stock investments, and he did. Um, and then when it became uh, um, clear that uh, the technology that he had backed was not safe and effective, he defested and held press conferences saying it's not working the way we hoped it would, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it, the whole thing, if, if anybody, if we had an independent press, uh, people would be, um, you know, jumping up and down. Sure. But, but we don't. Um, we have a captured press. So, and what's at stake right now? I, I believe that uh, there's been rumblings that uh, our, the United States is, is uh, considering allowing the WHO to make decisions regarding pandemics and declarations of pandemics. Yeah, you're talking about the international health regulations. Yes. Are you going to explain that a little bit? So, uh, the uh, IHRs were... Uh, Put in place uh, in like '95, uh, as I recall, uh, and um, 
uh, I don't think they were voted on by Congress as a treaty, but there's now been the establishment that of the uh, um, uh, precedent that a um, administrative action by the president can uh, commit the United States to a global uh, enforceable um, uh, commitments that aren't technically called treaties, otherwise they would have to be approved by Congress, but they have the force of law. Um, so basically now the president can act unilaterally to functionally create a treaty uh, without getting congressional approval um, by calling it uh, an administrative action. Um, and that can obligate us to uh, a legal position vis-a-vis -vis UN or WHO or whatever. And uh, so uh, the, I, the international health regulations uh, were, were developed uh, quite a while ago. And um, now the Health and Human Services in the United States has developed an update to the IHRs in which a lot of the language goes from uh, may to shall. Um, so previously optional compliance, mm -hmm. now mandated compliance. Mm. And uh, it includes clauses, new clauses, that talk about, that basically give the WHO, if they were enacted, uh, give the WHO um, uh, authority to uh, monitor or some might say spy, mm -hmm. on member states uh, for uh, in, uh, risk, public health risks, and uh, for compliance with WHO-mandated actions. Um, it also gives the, and then the proposal is, because the WHO doesn't have an enforcement arm, the World Trade Organization is the international enforcement arm for all of this. Everything the UN does and everything else, it's the WTO that is the enforcement arm. So now there's a, and this is an effort to couple uh, the World Trade Organization with the international health regulations that now become mandatory for compliance, or otherwise the WTO can impose sanctions on a nation state. And uh, this is down to the level of, in these current uh, proposals, that the WHO could, man could mandate that you would receive a medical intervention, product or whatever. Okay, so what? they, they can say that you, you are mandated uh, as a United States citizen to accept a WHO-directed uh, uh, medical intervention. Um, That's with, insane. With, yeah, it, absolutely. Um, uh, it's a total breach of sovereignty. It's a breach of personal sovereignty. It's a breach of national sovereignty. And it's proposed by our Health and Human Services um, and advanced. And what happened was it went up uh, last uh, late winter, early spring, um, and uh, so like a year ago, mm -hmm. and uh, a little more than a year ago. And it went up uh, as a series of proposals for vote and discussion. and. Uh, some people, including myself and, and um, a group out of the UK, uh, 
raised a big fuss that this was a uh, that under these terms and conditions, individual nation states would be losing their sovereignty because uh, Tedros could just declare a public health emergency for anything he wanted to. He, under this, uh, the Secretary uh, of of uh, World Health Organization. Um, can just declare a public health emergency for anything. So we could declare a public health emergency of tobacco consumption or um, uh, 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 gun violence or um, uh, um, racism, whatever. There's no stipulations on it's anything that can impact on health. Yeah. Which is anything. Yeah. Um, he can declare a emergency, mm-hmm. and uh, he can declare a uh, a mitigation, and and then that nation state would be required. So what happened was the African states and some of the Latin American states, including Brazil under Bolsonaro, um, got together and they basically said, "Hell no, go pound sand," um, and uh, the. Uh, vote failed, and uh, they went kind of back to the table, and now they've come up with another set of revisions um, that are, uh, the, the talk around them is that they're more inclusive and uh, less restrictive and, and uh, um, designed not to compromise the sovereignty of nation states. But if you look at the terms and conditions, it's all happy talk, and it's there's it's still got the same sure. kind of stuff in there. Um, so that comes up in 2014 for a vote. 2014 or 24? 2024. 2024. 2024. 2024. I'm sorry. Um, so uh, a little over a year from now. It, uh, I kind of hope that folks can make that more tangible and understand that you what you're describing is a complete loss of autonomy on what you want to do with your body if someone who's not even in the U.S. determines that you you are living in a in a country that's experiencing an emergency and this is or, what we're or, or you're living in a world that's experiencing a an emergency. World. Yes. So, so the, I like to use the example of monkeypox. Okay. Um, because it, it absolutely illustrates the arbitrary and capricious nature of the World Health Organization and its current director general. So uh, you've heard about monkeypox. You seen any monkeypox? No, no. Okay, he's a gastroenterologist. <laughs> he would see monkeypox, yeah, right? Yeah, see it. Okay. On entry, um, for sure. Okay, so he would be the one that would see it. Uh, and um, it did, It, you know, what we had this event... Uh, in in a uh, Seychelles, I think, in an island off the coast of Spain, that mm. was the biggest gay rave event in the world annually held, and happened to be almost exactly one year after there was some planning uh, akin to event two hundred one, uh, predicting that there would be a outbreak of monkeypox at within two weeks of that particular time when it happened. Okay, so that's interesting. Cool, mm-hmm. you know coincidence. Um, And then uh, there was a diaspora from the party, huge gay rave party, in which somehow this virus entered that population and was spread uh, through uh, gay sex, through um, men having sex with men. Uh, And uh, then because it has an incubation period, so a diaspora from that 
back to the countries and regions in which that lifestyle is more prevalent, so parts of Europe and the United States in particular, uh, in the UK. And, uh, and then we saw these cases uh, come up, and, uh, and um, we saw some uh, spread, secondary spread within those populations. And uh, the government, the U.S. government reacted very strongly and deployed a vaccine that uh, was designed for smallpox, a related virus, but for which there was no data that it was actually protective, that they had authorized for some strange reason, like nine months before, to be used for monkeypox. Um, and, uh, but without any data showing uh, effectiveness. Uh, and then um, there was a, a meeting at the World Health Organization uh, called, convened by the Secretary General uh, um, about this outbreak to determine whether or not it represented a global health emergency. And the uh, panel that examined it of experts that were in this panel to make these decisions uh, determined that it was not a, public, a global public health emergency. And so uh, Tedros um, uh, restructured that committee so that it was more representative of uh, medical care providers that, and others that typically, that more typically represent that community that was being uh, experiencing the outbreak. Um, uh, and uh, then reconvened the panel, and the panel voted nine against and six for, uh, declaring it a public health global public health emergency, which Tedros then declared a tie. Nine to four, nine to six was a tie. Um, he declared that was a tie, and that this will be designated as a global public health emergency, and so it was. Right? What? That. So that that is the absolute chain of events. You can you know I documented at the time on my Substack. We've got I've got multiple essays about this. This is insane. Um, but that shows you the um, uh, what what one there, there's a precedent for um, the way that this process of declaration of a public health emergency uh, has rolled out in the past. So if the past is a predictor of the future. Basically, I argue that we will have an arbitrary and capricious process for declaring these public health emergencies that can be easily corrupted and weaponized for political purposes. Unbelievable. I mean, I mean, just that whole, just, I had no idea with the, with the monkeypox. I had no idea that nine months before, just arbitrarily, hey, why don't we get this approved for this? And then, oh, hey, it comes out. And, oh, like, the, just the chain of events just seems so calculated. Yeah. Right. This and, and so this, this becomes the problem. Can you infer from that um, that there was uh, um, intent or conspiracy? Or is it just a circumstantial chain of events? And, and until we see some artifact, we, we can speculate, but we can't conclude. Yeah. Right? Even though, even though it seems... You know, like the nose on your face. Uh, what else could it be? Um, if you if you go there, then um, you're immediately uh, delegitimized. 
Um, uh, so that's that's I, I even though all the all that I the shots I've taken, mm-hmm. I try hard not to become even more delegitimized. Sure. Um, but then of course I get attacked from the right uh, because I'm not sufficiently radical and I'm not buying into all the crazy talk. It's a, it's a bizarre whole information ecosystem we've set up. Well, I feel like we've probably hit about 10% of all of the subject matter that we wanted to talk to you about when we got here. I mean, if I'm being quite honest, uh, we ran into some small technical issues to get started, so we were a little abbreviated today from what we uh, had planned on. But, Dr. Malone, could we um, have a follow-up interview on either via Zoom and follow through? With yeah, Zoom, Zoom is going to be the best. Cool. And uh, Zoom, uh, yeah. So that'll that'll be fun. I don't know. It's it's pretty beautiful out here. I wouldn't mind coming back. Oh, come back. Yeah. We can just do that. We can just do that again later. Okay. Yeah. One quick question for you. And you you took all those hits and did everything. And you wrote this incredible book, very detailed. Thank you. I'm still getting through it. Um, why did you write it? Uh, so, um, it the well the the easy answer is because. Uh, Tony Lyons asked me to, um, and uh, Jill and I, my my wife and partner of forty four years, had long talked about we should transition to becoming authors. Um, and now that I've destroyed my consulting business, I got to find some other gig. Um, uh, so so now that so this is you know the opportunity to write the book. It's timely. Um, it's clearly needed. Uh, no one. You know, Bobby's book takes you up to a point. And then I talked to him about it. I talked to him about Event 201. I talked to him about the wargaming and what goes on in that and um, what happens in terms of the personal dynamics. And, you know, we talk about groupthink and all that. And, and his, his book didn't cover that. You know, it kind of stopped. And so, so it seemed to have there be unmet need. And then... Uh, I, Jill and I were on the journey of trying to make sense out of all this. And so um, it, it became an opportunity for us to do sense-making mm-hmm. and um, to bring an audience along with us. And that's, that's what it really is, is. It's our personal journey of uh, this is what we've experienced, this is what the people around us have experienced, um, this is all the rabbit holes we've gone down to try to make sense out of it, and this is the sense we've made out of it, and then these are the things that we think, the third part, these are the things that we think is possible to do about all this stuff that we've discovered and experienced, and that it's continued on. I mean, that that's the substack is uh, kind of an ongoing discovery of all this stuff. I mean, it just, it's it's like the metaphor of the pebble in the in the still lake, and the rings just go and go and go, and, and um, it's a so it's a it's a personal journey of discovery for the two of us, and and hopefully bringing um, the reader along with us. Uh, and and the, that was the intention was not to write it for uh, the expert, but write it for. Um, you know, wide range of people to try to synthesize and make sense and not to tell people this is what happened, but rather to say, um, 
here's this thing, here's this thing, here's this thing. Now you've got the tools. Make sense of it in your own way uh, and bring your own experiences into it. So that that's, the, you know, I keep saying this to people. Don't, don't, um, don't take what I say as the gospel truth. You've got to learn and figure it out yourself. Um, that's the only way we become more immune to what's been done to us uh, going forward. I taught Eric today about gel man amnesia on the on the flight over. Yeah. <laughs> you say you just go out and do it yourself. That's exactly right. Well, and just uh, before we close, you referenced Bobby, that is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and his uh, book, The Real Dr. Anthony Fauci, correct? Yeah. Um, Dr. Malone, thank you so much for having us out here. You and your wife are lovely. I appreciate you having us out to uh, to visit you at your house, and I uh, can't wait to do it again. Super. Thanks. And so, where can people find all this great stuff that you're doing? rwmalonemd.substack.com is our main venue. It's free. You can subscribe to it if you want to pay for it. That's great. And you can participate in the chats. It keeps the bots down and the trolls. uh, But you don't have to. uh, And it'll just come straight into your inbox. And then on social media, it's at rwmalonemd for pretty much all platforms, uh, Twitter, uh, Gab, Getter, and Truth Social. And then uh, MaloneInstitute.org has a whole lot of content about the World Health, uh, Economic Forum. Mm-hmm. It has the most comprehensive spreadsheet of young leader trainees uh, in the world. Um, spent months on that and all kinds of other information, including this document that Ed Dowd wrote uh, called The Malone Doctrine. I didn't write it. Ed wrote it with some buddies of his in Maui. It's a fascinating document about integrity, and it's designed as kind of a, um, something that organizations can endorse, and uh, that if, if enough organizations would endorse it, then that could be a basis for doing business, because you would know that the other organization has integrity if they believe in those principles. So that's a, that's a good one to look up. That's great. Awesome. That's going to do it for episode number 104. The Dr. Robert Malone joining us today, and uh, be sure to like and share, and certainly appreciate everyone for joining us with the Gut Check Project. Ken? Yes, this is awesome. Thank you so much. Once again, appreciate the hospitality. Okay, cool. That's a wrap for this episode of the Gut Check Project Raw. And without you, there is no show. Remember to check in with GCP Raw each week to see upcoming guests, possible scheduled live streams, submit questions for upcoming shows, and take advantage of exclusive discounts to Raw members. Don't forget that you can listen and watch the Gut Check Project Raw on the Locals app from your smartphone or smart TV. Tell your friends and family not to wait any longer to get gut checked.